There we go. Thank you, Sherry. That's my secretary, Sherry. Um, here's the backstory of where we are. We're in chapter seven of John. We're about six months from the cross, the end of his ministry on earth, and yet the beginning of Christianity. He is at the Feast of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of Booths, also called Sukkot, uh, is the Hebrew way of saying it. Um, we're going to really dive into what that festival is and why what Jesus says tonight in this passage is so outlandish in a way and amazing in another. Um, let's see. Who Jesus is has been the subject matter forever in this Bible study in the book of John. So we're going to look at that again tonight um, because he's giving more and more information about who he is and, and it's becoming more and more controversial and he's getting a lot of uh, pushback from the people, uh, the Jewish people there hearing him. Um, let's see, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit as well and living water. Um, Underneath it all, there's been rising tension with the religious leaders, the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, Pharisees. They just want him dead. They hate him so much. Anyway, let's dive in. Um, little, we'll just take a little bit of a, a look back. Chapter 7, pick it up in verse... Um, Let's see. He, he's talking in verse 21. He says, I did one miracle and you're all, you're all astonished. He's talking about when he healed the guy at the pool of Siloam, the guy that was paralyzed for 38 years. And he um, had him get up and take his pallet and walk, remember? And he was healed instantly. Beautiful miracle showing great compassion. What do the Pharisees say? They're angry at Jesus because it was on the Sabbath. Remember all that? So, um, he says, I did one miracle, and you're all astonished, yet because Moses gave you circumcision, verse 22, he's going to make an analogy that they were allowed to circumcise a child on the eighth day, even if the eighth day was a Sabbath, which would be considered work, but they made an exception. He's saying, if you're going to make an exception for that, why can't you make an exception for me, not circumcising a child, but making a whole man whole again, uh, an entire man whole again? Um, so the last verse of that little section, verse 24, is key for this whole chapter. Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. That's verse 24. And this is so true, as I said, for the whole chapter, but it's true for all of us. We realize we make judgments and assessments of people based on appearances. Um, one of the sermons I heard this week on this passage said, um, the title of the sermon was judging a book by the cover that you gave it instead of judging rightly. Obviously, God can judge people because he can see into our hearts, our motives, our very souls and read our thoughts. So he's a better judge. Um, so <clears throat> let's see, verse uh, 25 and 26, they're amazed that he's teaching publicly because some of the locals know the Pharisees want him, the religious leaders of Judaism want him dead, and yet he doesn't seem afraid, and they're not uh, arresting him, verse 26. Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? So there's all kinds of questions and controversy about him. But look at verse 27. Talk about judging by mere appearances. Verse 27, they really get it wrong here. 27 says, uh, but we know where this man is from. 
when the Christ comes, when the Christ comes, the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. Now, this is tradition. That's what's talking there. Because the Bible clearly says that this, the, and they're going to say it later in this chapter, that the Messiah comes from Bethlehem, from the family of David. Jesus is related to David on his mother's and his father's sides. Um, but the tradition was that the Messiah would show up suddenly at the temple and be mysterious. No one would know where he's from. That was the tradition. But scripture says where he's supposed to come from, which is Bethlehem. The prevailing opinion about Jesus is, oh, it's that hick guy from Nazareth, which is up north, okay? Kind of the way out in the country, less educated people, less sophisticated people than the big city, which is Jerusalem. So they're already pegging him as, oh, he's from Nazareth. Well, the truth is, as you know, he lived there, but he was born in Bethlehem, just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. So they've misunderstood who and what he is. So this is where we're picking it up, verse 28. Those of you that are here, so I know you're awake, say amen. amen. Well, that was pretty good. Uh, and those of you on Zoom, say amen, even though I can't hear you, or you can wave. Good one. Beautiful. Verse 28. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him. Okay, so this is complete sarcasm. He's not saying you're correct. I'm from Nazareth. You know, I'm just a man. He's being sarcastic, um, kind of ironic. You know me and you know where I'm from. They think he's from Nazareth. He's actually from Bethlehem, but he's really actually from heaven. He's about to say that. He existed forever in the past, long before Bethlehem, where he was born. So he's being sarcastic here. Yeah, you know me and you know where I'm from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me, talking about God the Father, is true. Uh, True is uh, an interesting word, uh, alethinos. In Greek, it means authentic, absolutely real. He's implying that they're not authentic. They're not real. Um, he who sent me, I'm not here on my own. He who sent me is true. You do not know him. For him to say this to the Jews that are there celebrating this festival, festival we're going to talk about uh, Feast of Tabernacles or booths, they call it. For him to say, You don't know the one that sent me, God the Father, is just astounding and bold, but he's right. The backstory here is that there's always in a family a family resemblance, right? And uh, I looked like both my parents, but a little more, I think, like my mom than my dad, minus the mustache, of course. Anyway, um, had they known God the Father, his character, they would have recognized this is the same guy. Jesus Christ is just like the Father. He is God in a man's body is the only difference. But they're looking at the outward appearance, and so that's what's messing them up. But he's saying, you don't know my Father. That's going to come back in a second. 
Um, but verse 29, I know him because I am from him and he sent me. It's a little ironic that he says, I'm from, remember that was the question. Isn't he from Nazareth? He says, I'm from him, not a place, a person. He's from God because he is God. One of the three members of the Trinity, one God revealed in three persons. So it's an astounding indictment. You don't know him. I know him. I know God. John 1, 1, do you remember? In the beginning was the word. That's another way of saying Christ, the logos, the reason for everything. He was in the beginning with God. The word for with there, John 1, 1, is face-to-face -face intimate. But God the Father, God the Son were together forever in the past, extremely close. Um, I know him because I'm from him. He sent me. Bold again, saying God sent him. The reaction, verse 30, so they were bowing down and worshiping him. Nope. So they were seeking to arrest him. Isn't that amazing? They never mention at this point, what would the charge be? They just want to arrest him. They are so threatened by him. He's drawing bigger crowds than each of the rabbis that teach in that during that festival uh, around the temple. So they're seeking to arrest him, verse 30, and yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Now, whenever you read that in the Gospel of John, his hour hadn't come, it means the cross. And included in that is the five days before the um, coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, what we would call Palm Sunday. Okay. Turns out that day to the day was designated a, a many, many years ago, hundreds of years before this in Daniel nine, if, at verse 24 to 27. If you were with us, then I explained all that. It's hard to just say it in one sentence, but in any case, um, this is interesting. They're seeking to arrest him. There's their human free will. And they're free to do that. They want to do that. Later in this chapter, they're going to send temple police to do it. And it's not going to happen. Why is that? Because there is human free will, but there's also divine God's sovereignty, meaning he rules over everything. And he is free as God to see my free will and override it, right? For his own purposes. So, they want to arrest him. But what you read about in this book over and over again in the Gospel of John is they don't arrest him. They don't harm him because, this phrase keeps coming up, his hour had not yet come. Meaning that Jesus was supernaturally protected that whole time until Judas betrays him and he gets arrested because it was God's time, not their time. They didn't choose it. It looked like he was a hapless victim. It turns out he orchestrates the whole thing because the main reason he's here is not to teach or to heal or to multiply loaves and fish. The main reason he's on earth, on earth is to die for the sins of the world. So he has, in a way, complete immunity to any attacks against him until the time comes. He is on God's timetable. He's not in the least concerned about anybody else's timetable. What's the practical implication for me, you ask? I'm glad you asked. Here it is. You have a timetable too. Not nearly as important as God's and or Christ's, 
but it's God's timetable for you. The very hairs on your head are numbered and your days are numbered. God knows how many more weeks, months, years, days, hours, hopefully decades you have, right? And until that prescribed time, nothing can happen to you that will end your life. But the point is, we don't know how much time we have. Jesus did. He knows he's got about six months. For you and I, we need to spend the time wisely because we don't know. But being confident that when the time comes, you can't be that bummed out. Oh, I'm getting cheated. I'm only this. I thought I would get to be 85 or 90. It's the time God gave each one of us. We have to be submissive to him all the way to the end, right? Um, so they're seeking to arrest him, yet no one laid a hand on him, supernaturally protected. I just love that. And um, they're probably wondering why they can't get him. Verse 31. So they're trying to arrest him. Verse 31. But many of the crowd believed in him. And they were saying, when the Christ comes, will he not perform more signs than those which this man has done? Will he? In other words, like I like to say to unbelievers, if I'm witnessing to them, have you examined the life of Christ? Yes, I know the miracles. Yeah, okay. The rising from the dead. Yeah. What would you expect a man who is fully God and fully man to do that Jesus didn't do? So we can talk about what did he do? He spoke with incredible wisdom, right? Later in this chapter, those who come to arrest him, the temple police are going to report back. We didn't get him. And they're going to say, what? Why? And they're going to say, because no one ever spoke the way this guy speaks. It's incredible. That alone is a pretty amazing thing. But besides that, you know, he healed many different types of diseases, raised people from the dead, cast out demons, defied the laws of nature like gravity, right? By walking on water. He told storms more than once, shh, and the storm stopped. Ordinary men don't do that, right? So all those miracles speak to his character and who he is, which John is referring to over and over again. So that's why this rhetorical question, when the Christ comes, remember Christ is Christos in Greek. It's the same word as Mashiach or Messiah in Hebrew, two different languages, same word, the promised anointed one that's going to come. When he comes, is he going to do more miracles than this guy? In other words, they're saying kind of seems like this is the guy. Their religious leaders who hate him don't do miracles. Something's going on with this guy. Many believed in him. And that's where those are the ones that are saying this based on the signs, which, as we said, is better than no faith at all. But it is a weak faith to only believe in somebody because of miracles. The problem is, if a miracle happens in your life and your faith is strengthened, great. But you tend to start looking for the next one and the one after that. And if they don't come and you're just supposed to believe regardless faith can dwindle if your faith is what's called sign faith, or I look for the miracles. I need to see more signs and more show sort of thing. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering these things about him. See, they're afraid of the religious leaders. They don't want to be seen as on Jesus' side. So the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. They've had it. Again, no trial, 
They don't have charges in mind. They've just had it with him teaching. He cleansed the temple, you remember, earlier. He's going to do it again at the end of his ministry um, as well. So they've decided, go get him. The, there were, of course, the Romans who had really hardened, tough soldiers. That's not who this is. The Romans took over Israel and most of that part of the world at this time, and they ruled with an iron fist. They're the ones that did crucifixion as a way of limiting crime. But they allowed the Jews to have their temple police. These guys are Levites, Jews from the tribe of Levi, and their job is manage the temple and police things that are of a religious nature, but the Jews have lost the ability to do capital punishment. So the temple police aren't that powerful, really. They can do some things, but not a lot, but they're not hardened, you know, uh, soldier types. They're Jewish males that are of the tribe of Levi. So there they go. They've decided, let's arrest him. We'll see what happens. Verse 33, therefore, Jesus said, for a little while longer, I'm going to be with you, or I am with you, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You get the feeling there that he knows the timetable, doesn't he? How much longer? Sounds like a very few days, but it turns out it's about six months before he's going to go to the Father, Cruci arrested, crucified, uh, rises from the dead and goes to the Father. So he's predicting in a veiled sort of way his own death. Look at it again. Um, for a little while longer, I'm going to be with you. Then I'm going to him who sent me. Then I'm going to heaven, back to the Father. Veiled reference to his death. It's also a way of saying this is a limited time offer jump on now because it's going to get harder later. Certainly people did come to faith in him after he rose and all of that, the Pentecost uh, thing in Acts 2. So he wants them to know he's only going to be with them a little while longer. Now, if you're Peter, James, John, Andrew, Bartholomew, whoever, one of the apostles, you have left your business behind. Peter left his family behind temporarily, and they're following this guy wholeheartedly. And they may have went, what did he say? I'm only going to be with you a little while longer than I'm going to. This is all going to end quickly. The truth is, the ironic thing is, it's going to just be beginning for them, right? After he leaves, the church explodes with growth. Uh, we'll talk about that a little later, too. I'm only going to be with you a little while longer. Then I'm going to the him who sent me. Verse 34, double meaning. You will seek me and will not find me and where I am. You cannot come. Okay. You will seek me and you won't find me. Now, does he mean people are going to be looking for Jesus and not find him? That's on a base level, an earthly level. That's what it means, right? Because he's not going to be around anymore. They can find Peter, James, and John, and the other apostles, and Jesus' family, and Mary. Where is he? Gone, right? Because he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. But there's a deeper meaning here. He's talking to the Jews and he's saying, double meaning, you will seek me. The Jew, remember, this is 2,000 years ago, approximately. The Jews have been seeking their Messiah prior to this 
and ever since. Since he said this, it's been almost 2,000 years that the Jews are still looking for, waiting for the first coming of the Messiah. We know as Christians, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. We're waiting for the second coming, right? But the first coming, he's saying, is about to end. You're going to look for me and you won't find me. Jews are still looking for the Messiah. After Jesus rose from the dead and ascended, there were dozens of false messiahs that were a scourge on Israel. Many of them were killed, didn't rise from the dead, by the way, and just confused their religion. Their messiah came to them, fulfilled, by the way, over 300 Old Testament scriptures, and it went right over their heads. They missed it. So Jesus is saying, you'll seek me, but you won't find me. And here comes another indictment. What did he say earlier? You don't know the father. I know him. I'm from him. Remember that? Now he says, where I'm going, you can't come. Where's he going? Heaven, right? It's another veiled way of saying, not only do you not know the father, not only do you not know the scriptures or me, but where, because of that, where I'm going, you can't come. Translation, you're not saved. You're going to hell. Notice how Jesus doesn't water things down. He's saying very seriously to them, where I'm going, you can't come. Because of their unbelief. Don't make the mistake of saying, oh, it's because they're sinners. Well, that's partly true, but so are we. So am I right? And we can come, we can go to heaven and see him, can't we? Why? Because of Jesus's death on the cross. Again, we'll talk about that more in a second. You'll seek me and you won't find me. And where I am, some translations have where I'm going, you can't come. Verse 35, remember verse 24 is the key verse. Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. So do they understand what he's saying? No, they have no clue. Watch. Verse 35, then the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He does not intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, does he? What is this statement, verse 36, that he said, you will seek me and will not find me and where I am, you can't come. They're thinking on the human plane, the earthly plane, the three dimensions we live in, He's just going to split and go live in Yugoslavia or Spain, or and you won't see me anymore. He, he means I'm going to the whole different dimension called heaven, the spiritual dimension where God lives, where the angels live, what have you. Now, what's interesting is there's irony in this verse. They're saying, is he going to go to the Greeks? Now, remember, Jews had two words for non-Jews. One is the word Gentiles, right? All a Gentile is, is a person that's not Jewish. But they had developed in this culture, the other word, Greeks, which meant people from Greece, yes, but everybody, the street language of the day was Greek. So Greeks became also another way of saying Gentiles. Is he going to go live among the, the, uh, the Jews that are dispersed, the dispersion, uh, diaspora, it's called? What, has, what happened over the course of Israel's history is they kept getting invaded and conquered, and some Jews would split and go live in Spain, and some would live in Rome, and some would live in 
France or wherever, or East, you know, Turkey and Libya or wherever, and some would stay there and be captive. So the Jews were being spread out, um, dispersion. Is he going to go there? Is he going to leave because he's afraid? And they get it completely wrong because he's going to heaven. Um, and then that's just a repeat, verse 36. What is this statement? Okay, before we read verse 37, we need to talk about the Feast of Tabernacles. I want to give you more background, which will make his words blossom like a flower and come alive. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Good one. Okay, Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, same thing. A booth is a tabernacle, a small temporary dwelling. You would think of it as a tent, but they didn't have tents. They would make temporary dwellings out of branches, open on uh, one side, closed in on three. This was sort of a national, one of the three biggest festivals, the most happy, joyous um, celebration type one, almost like our Thanksgiving, but more specifically Thanksgiving toward God. It would take place, um, Feast of uh, Booths or uh, Tabernacles, late September, or early to mid-October. So it's a fall festival, happens right after the harvest. Remember that this is an agrarian culture. They're growing stuff to eat. They don't have pantries and Costco and all that. They are dependent on God for the rain, for the crops. So this festival has multiple layers of meaning, but it goes all the way back to when the Jews were um, leaving Israel, uh, Egypt, remember, after the Red Sea, they wandered in the wilderness for years. Do you remember that? And God provided for them. And so they're remembering that by when we were wandering, we were camping out under branches. And so everybody would come to Jerusalem that was able-bodied and would camp out and make little huts out of branches and what have you. Even if you lived in Jerusalem, you would do it on your roof or in your backyard. Um, for a whole week as a way of remembering, but also being thankful that God brought us through all that. He provided for us all the way through that whole uh, when we were wandering in the desert. Um, so every day, it's a seven-day feast, happens right after Yom Kippur, which interestingly enough is the day, Yom means day in Hebrew, Yom Kippur, day of atonement, um, comes the Feast of Booths. Um, every morning, seven days in a row, there's this thing, a, a procession, almost like a parade called the water libation. Every morning, priests would march from the temple to the pool of Siloam. You say, it sounds familiar to me, Siloam, some people say. It's where Jesus healed the guy. Remember, 38 years, he was paralyzed. The pool of Siloam, Siloam means the one who is sent or the sent one. Jesus just said, I'm the one sent by my father. Watch how much symbolism there is about Jesus in this whole festival. It goes back to way early in the Old Testament. Okay, so the priests would, with palm branches, musical instruments being played, even electric guitars. Okay, I made that up. Never mind. Um, from the temple, they would walk to the pool of Siloam with thousands of people walking with them, a procession. When they get there, there was one priest had a golden big pitcher, 
that he would get water out of the pool of Siloam, okay, symbolically, remembering that God had provided water in the wilderness for the Jews. We'll come back to that in a second. He would carry that back to the temple area with all the people with him. They would sing Psalm 117, a Hillel Psalm, and he would get there and pour the water out on the ground, symbolizing a sacrifice of the water, thanking God for this year's harvest, thanking God for what he did generations before it with the Exodus and the Jews wandering, providing water. You say, how did he provide water? You mean by rain kind of thing? No. You remember the story, right? Um, in Numbers and in Exodus, the Jews are out in the wilderness. If you know that part of the world, you know it's very deserty. There's not much water. We're talking about a, a, approximately a million Jews Moses is leading out of Egypt in the wilderness, and there's no water. And they're grumbling, and you kind of can't complain. Uh, you can't blame them, right? So they tell Moses, hey, we need water. Moses goes to God, please, we need water. God says a strange thing. See that rock over there? Moses says, yes. God says, take your staff like a baseball bat and hit it. Hit it hard. Hit the rock. Moses does it. Water comes out like a fire hydrant. Enough for all the people. Total miracle. You can go try that anywhere you want in Yosemite. Hit any rock you want. I don't think you're going to get water like this. Total miracle. Moses followed God's instructions perfectly. Hit the rock. He hits the rock. They get water. They understand this is a miraculous provision providing, God providing water. The second time they need water, you remember the story? Moses has kind of had it with the whining of the Jews. We need water. Oi, we need some water. Come on. So Moses goes to God. I pretty much had it with this people, God. They want water. God says, go to the rock. Don't hit it. Speak to it. Just speak to the rock. Water will come out. Moses says, aye, aye, I got it. But he's angry and he's human. He goes to the rock and starts to get a little too much ego. And Moses says to the people, shall we fetch water for you? Wrong. It's God giving them water, right? Well, that's what's about to happen. And instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes the rock a second time, which is not what God said to do. God graciously still gives them water, but privately tells Moses, from now on, you're in the penalty box. You're going to see the promised land from far away, but you will never enter the promised land now because you didn't do exactly what I told you. Now, you may hear that story. And, you may, and so, by the way, Moses doesn't enter the promised land, dies before they get there, sees it from far away, just like God said. Who does lead them? Most of you know Joshua, right? Whose name is actually Yeshua, the same as Jesus is Yeshua. Moses, representing the law, can only take them so far. Yeshua, Jesus, means God is salvation, takes them all the way to the promised land. Okay, go back to this rock thing, Joe, we don't understand. Listen, 
First time, strike the rock. Okay? I'll tell you now, and then I'll prove it. The rock is a symbol of Jesus Christ. Paul says so. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, we're going to go there in a minute. The first time Jesus comes to the earth, he's struck. And the living water comes out. This is all, uh, I'm giving this as a background before we go further in John. It'll make sense in a second. But from then on, if you want water from Jesus, the Holy Spirit, salvation, washing, regeneration, fruitfulness, all the things water brings, does he have to die again? Do we have to hit him again? No. He struck the first time. From then on, God says, picturing Christ, I just want you to speak to the, to the rock. And when you came to Jesus Christ, that's what you did. Lord, I'm sorry for my sins. I don't know exactly who you are, but I ask you to come into my life and lead me. I repent of my sins. Please be my Savior, my Lord. You spoke to Jesus Christ. It doesn't have to be those words, but something like that, right? Repentance, I believe. I believe you rose from the dead. I believe you're God's son, who's the sacrifice by which I can be cleansed and forgiven. God wanted that picture to be in the minds of the Jews. Moses blew it. But the point of the festival is thanksgiving for the crops, thanksgiving especially for the water in the wilderness. Now, in the houses of that era, where we're talking now, first century, very few, few people, if any, had what you have and take for granted, running water right? You had to go get water somewhere. It would easily get polluted and what have you. Um, water that was in pools got polluted. That's why they added a little bit of wine to purify it. But there was a thing that was rare. They called living water. And what it meant was what you and I would call a spring. You ever see a spring? It's just bubbling out of the ground. The water's always, almost always really clear and clean, and it's an abundant supply. It's a dream come true for that culture. Uh, that's background as well. Um, okay, back to the little ceremony. Seven days a row, in a row, they did what I said. Poured the water out in the temple area. By the way, right near the water gate where President Nixon... No, never mind. Okay, the, off on a tangent there. I apologize. Um, they're celebrating that God was faithful in the wilderness. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, go there real quickly with me. It's four books-ish to the right. Um, it might even be three now that I think about it. Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're only going to be here a second. 1 Corinthians 10. Hmm. He's talking about the our forefathers in, in verse one, all under the cloud, remember, passed through the sea, Red Sea. Verse two, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank this from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. Remember that rock I talked about? And that rock was Christ. Totally a symbol of, G uh, of Jesus, that rock was. The, the unlimited amount of water that will come uh, when the Messiah shows up. Okay, go back to uh, John chapter 7 now with me. I'll get there in a second here. Um, okay, the rest of the water, because there was other water taken out of that pool, was brought to the altar in the temple. 
where it was poured into a basin and another basin next to it, and wine was poured in there as well. The rabbis, it, this is all tradition. It wasn't in the scripture, this part. The rabbis would write volumes on why the water and the wine. They weren't really sure, but you know, and so do I. In the last, in the Lord's Supper, in the Last Supper, do you remember? The bread is what? His body. What's the wine? His blood, right? Do you remember Jesus on the cross gets a, pier, a pierced side to make sure he's dead from a soldier? Remember, huge spear goes up in his side. The spear, if you talk to medical people, will tell you they it pierced the pericardium. Is that the right thing? Yeah. Okay. Somebody's back there. Sherry knows the medical stuff. And what comes out of Jesus's body? Water and blood. Some say that's the symbolism here. Okay. So that's for seven days they do this. But Hoshana Rabbah is the last and great day of the festival. And this is a little strange. Um, th this is the eighth day but still considered part of the festival, which was only seven days. The eighth day, they march out there to the pool of Siloam. They've got the golden pitcher and they don't dip it in the pool. And they walk back to the temple with an empty pitcher. Symbolizing, we recognize God. We are totally dependent on you for water. Thanks for the harvest. Thanks for the water. Thanks for the water in the wilderness. But now we got an empty pitcher and the priest would go like this and pour it out. And there's nothing implying we are thirsty. We're thirsty for more water. Please provide for us. But also we're thirsty for the promised one, the sent one. Siloam means the sent one. We're thirsty for the Messiah to come. Um, they would quote Isaiah 44, three and four. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on dry land. I will pour out my, listen, spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendant. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. That's the context of what we're about to read. All that was background. And most of you are asleep, but we're going to keep moving anyway. Um, at that point, they would bow their heads, every Jew that was there, and they would pray. And basically, they were praying, as I said, for rain from heaven so that they wouldn't die. They need the water. And they would pray for rain, R-E-I-G-N, the rain of Messiah, that Messiah would show up, saying that they were thirsty and dry physically and also spiritually. As that's happening, Jesus is about to stand up and yell something out. That was all the background. You with me so far? And what's weird is they're praying for the Messiah to come. And he's standing there listening as they're praying. Okay. Um, let's see. I want to see if I have to read anything else here. I think that's it. Yeah. So now go back to John chapter 7 and verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood. Remember that whole ceremony? The empty pitcher, no water. They're praying for Messiah. Jesus stands up. By the way, rabbis usually sat when they taught. 
He's standing up, meaning this is a very important announcement. On the last and greatest day of the festival, verse 37, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, King James has, he cried out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. He's claiming to be the water that they're praying for. He's claiming to be the answer to their prayers. I'm here, folks. I'm the Messiah. May I point out three words in what he said? And this, this um, summarizes it so beautifully. Thirsty, come, drink. That's the whole story, isn't it? People do not come to Jesus Christ who don't know that they're thirsty. What do you mean by thirsty? They recognize the emptiness inside of them. They recognize their own guilt and sin before God that they can't fix or atone for. They recognize that something's missing. They're thirsty. They come to Jesus and they, they don't sip, they drink. To drink means to take in so totally that it becomes part of you, right? Take it all in. On the last and the greatest day of the festival, that's what he says. Uh, and there's more. Let anyone, notice anyone, not just Jewish people, guilty people, Gentiles, sinners, Pharisees, and religious leaders, anyone, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Verse 38, whoever believes in me, see now it's a faith thing, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. That sounds just like what we were talking about with this whole Feast of Tabernacles thing. Um, we have to take a few uh, detours here for a second. Oh, you know what I forgot to mention? Sorry, it's like four verses ago. Remember when they said, is he going to the Greeks? And is he going? The irony there is Jesus never leaves Israel except to go to Samaria, right? He never goes to Greece, to Rome, to travels in a very small area and he changes the world forever the irony is he's not going to those places but the disciples will and christianity is going to explode with growth in that whole area within a few hundred years it'll become the official religion of the roman empire it is this year 2021 as it has been for centuries the largest religion in the world but he didn't even travel there his followers did empowered by the Holy Spirit, which we're about to talk about, changed the world, turned it completely upside down. Whoever, verse 38, believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Remember what living water is? A spring, not four gallons of water, unlimited water will, notice what he says, it'll flow from you and out of you. Remember in Psalm 23, my cup runs over. That, that, that pictures so much abundance, right? If you came to my house and I said, may I refill your cup? And you said, yes. And I poured three times the volume of your cup. It would be making a mess. You'd go, really, that's enough, Joe. But the point is in the Psalm and here, absolute abundance to where not only are you being blessed by those rivers of living water, but you have enough that it's coming out of you and blessing those around you as you witness right? Christianity at its best is a contagious, in a good way, religion, right? Um, let's see. 
Should we stop there and take our two-minute break? No, not yet. You're still awake. That's a good thing. Believing in him is the key. Being thirsty, coming to him and drinking, believing in him, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant, verse 39, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. You say, why not? Why didn't he give people the Holy Spirit as he was preaching? It would have made things so much easier. The answer is the Holy Spirit is God. And God is absolutely perfect and holy and cannot live inside me or you as long as the sin problem is still there, right? Because my spiritual house as an unbeliever is an absolute mess. Jesus has to go to Calvary and die on the cross, rise from the dead, ascend to heaven before the Holy Spirit can come into people and dwell in them forever at which point, that's when the water starts flowing. The Holy Spirit washes us, convicts us of sin, makes the Bible more clear. That's the way you're understanding whether you know it or not. It's not your superior brain or spirituality. It's the fact the Holy Spirit is making this book, hopefully, come alive to you. Um, it's also not the teacher, for sure. The rivers of living water flow within them and flow outward. That's the Holy Spirit. Um, they're later to receive. Three parts of the transaction, if you will, and then we'll take our two-minute break. Listen. Transaction number one, there has to be a payment for sin. That's the cross, right? Number two, And he dies in your place and mine. Transaction number two, he has to rise from the dead to prove that he's conquered death. Otherwise, he's just another religious martyr. Transaction number two, he rises from the dead, which proves he's conquered death. Transaction number three, he has to ascend to heaven, which shows that God has accepted his sacrifice and received him back. He truly was sinless, the son of God, etc. Once that happens, he ascends in Acts chapter one, right around verse nine or 10. You may remember, he just goes up and they're watching him go. Do you remember that? What happens in Acts two? Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes on upon believers in a way that is astounding, and they're speaking in other languages so that everyone can hear, and Peter preaches a sermon, his first one, with the Holy Spirit permanently in him, and 3,000 people get saved like that. Let's take our two-minute break, and we'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away, those of you on Zoom, and those of you here can stretch. I'll be right back. There we go. Welcome back, everybody. Find your seats. Thank you. Find your seats back there. People reminding me to hit record and turn my camera and microphone on. Um, we're back in uh, John chapter seven. He's putting out this. Got it. Thank you. Putting out this offer. Come to me, those that are thirsty and drink. I want you to see something else. Sidebar. The unbelievable grace here. What do you mean? In chapter five, he healed the man and they came down hard on him. Do you remember? Because it was the Sabbath and they wanted to kill him. Chapter six, he preaches a sermon about the living bread. Come to me, those of you that are hungry, very gracious. And what happens? Chapter six, verse 66, most of the followers split and don't believe anymore. Chapter seven, 
He preaches this sermon. They want to kill him. They've already sent people to come and arrest him. They just haven't done so yet, right? With all of that hatred from the Jews, what does he do? Graciously, he offers them salvation. You say, well, I'm not Jewish. That doesn't really affect me. Oh, yes, it does. Because you and I, before we were saved, were gross, dirty sinners, and he made the same offer to you and me. It's not based on your merit or mine. It's based on how kind and loving he is. Okay, I'm looking at my notes here. Yeah, we already talked about that. Um, remember the true bread from heaven, hunger, water. He's dealing with things that human beings understand as, I really need water right? We've said before in this Bible study that you can live without food, a human being can, for 29 days, supposedly. Some a little more, depends how much fat you got on you, but you can live a long time without food. Now, certainly you're not having fun the second, third, fourth, and fifth day when you're really getting hungry, but you can live without food a long time. However, water, three to five days is about it, and you're dead. Water is the element we need the most. Amen. That's why he's choosing these symbol, these symbols to show I am what you need. I'm the answer to what you're praying for, the Messiah, the living water, all of the above. Um, let's see. Um, pick it up in chapter seven again. Um, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament comes upon people I, uh, Elijah, Jeremiah, um, Ezekiel, prophets, for a time to prophesy. When David, who has the Holy Spirit and is able to write Psalms and scripture, right? When David sins with Bathsheba, do you remember what he prays? Oh God, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Meaning what? Meaning it was a temporary thing in those days. You don't have to pray that, and neither do I. Once the Holy Spirit comes and takes residence in a believer, he stays there forever. How do I get that, you say? Once you believe, look back at the text. Whoever believes in me, if anyone's thirsty, and you were, come to me, and you did, and drink, and you did. At that moment, whoever believes, verse 38, as soon as you believe, the Holy Spirit makes you alive, has made you alive, and comes to live inside of you. Um, in a way that is not explainable in human terms. But the spiritual and the physical have joined, if you will. The physical body you had was alive, but you were spiritually, Ephesians 2 verse 1, dead in your trespasses and sins. All of a sudden, you are a believer and you're alive spiritually as well as physically. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Among other things, the Holy Spirit is a much louder conscience than the one you have, which, you know, the conscience shouldn't do that, Joe. Don't say that. Don't think that. Don't steal that. Don't do that. Don't touch that. Holy Spirit is a louder and better conscience. Holy Spirit makes the scriptures come alive in a way that if you read them before you were a believer, you felt like you were reading somebody else's mail and it made no sense. You know who knows that's true? Me. I read the Bible before I was a believer and it was like, none of this makes sense to me. I read the same thing now, and it makes perfect sense to me. Not because I'm smarter. I got some help, right? The Holy Spirit. Um, you've heard me use the analogy about the radio. How many know the radio analogy? No, not many of you remember. Perfect. Everybody was asleep that day. Um, this sounds like a weird thing to say, 
but in this room, and those of you on Zoom as well, you're not in the same room, but the, what I'm about to say rings true for you as well. If you're very quiet, can you hear it? Right now, there's rock and roll playing. Oh, there's Christian hymns playing. Can you hear it? And right now there's classical music. Oh, there's several stations playing uh, Mexican music. Can you hear it? In Spanish. Oh, and there's talk radio. Can you hear it? And you're all thinking, Joe's starting to lose it. Been teaching too long. Why can't you people hear it? I'll tell you why. You don't have the equipment. You don't have a radio. If somebody had a radio, he, they would go, look, he's right. And they'd oh, turn it on and turn the volume up and spin the dial and go, there's all those things he was talking about, right? Classical music and country music. And what's your point? Until you have the Holy Spirit, you do not have the equipment to understand and discern spiritual things. You may think you're spiritual as an unbeliever. You're not. But once you're a believer, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. The radio station is dialed in and turned up. And now suddenly you can not only hear God when he speaks in his word, but you can also hear God when a preacher preaches or somebody with a mustache teaches a Bible study or without the mustache even. You can also hear it when you read Christian books. You can also hear the still small voice that says, um, my house, I call it the Holy Spirit text. I get these in these um, sort of like God going, you know, you really should call him. And I'm thinking, eh. and then I do. And then I find out, you know what? You called at the perfect time. I'm having a hard day. Well, what's going on? I didn't know, but I got the Holy Spirit text, if you will. Every time I don't obey that, I'm always sorry because I find out I should have called him yesterday. And what's going on with him? Oh, he's in the hospital. Oh, my gosh. What happened? Be sensitive to not just praying to God and leaving, taking time to listen. Just be silent before God to let him talk to you. Two-way communication, primarily through the word. I don't hear audible voices. I'm not that weird, you know, but I'm pretty weird. Back to the text. Say amen so I know you're awake. Beautiful. Um, so the Holy Spirit hasn't been given yet because he has not been glorified. He uses that term for the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. That's his glory. What you and I would see if we were there as a bloody mess, a swollen, bloody, shredded flesh mess, he saw it as being glorified. It's the worst thing that ever happened on planet earth, the cross. God came to earth in a body and we killed him. And it's the best thing that ever happened on planet earth. Sin was finally dealt with because somebody took your place, took the punishment you deserve. Do you remember when we talked about predestination and God choosing people in a long line? Remember, you come over a ridge and you're walking in this grassy field and you look and there's a long line of people, single file line, and you go to the person at the back of the line, you say, excuse me, what do you, what, what is this line? And, and the guy turns around and he goes, this is, a, it's sort of like death row. And you say, what? We're all sinners. We've all sinned before God. We deserve punishment. That's why we're in the line. Have you sinned? And you say, well, yeah. And he says, get in line. And you go, oh, no. I do deserve to be here. Here comes Jesus pulling people out of line. Okay. Does he have the right to do so? He's God, right? But to complete the analogy we gave a few weeks ago, he not only pulls people out of line, 
he gets in line in your place. He's going to take the punishment you deserve at the end of that line when it's your turn. The punishment I deserve, you deserve. Total separation from God forever. Hell, for those of you that like short words, he takes on the cross. I don't mean he went to hell and was tortured by the devil. That's bad theology. But on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. That's what hell is. The absolute separation from all things holy, from God for eternity. Jesus took it on the cross as the sinless lamb of God. The, as Terry and I were saying, he was saying, well, the kinsman redeemer, right? We won't go into all that now. That was the book of Ruth. We went into that heavily. Okay, back to the text. Um, verse 40. So what did he just say? I'm the one, the one you're looking for. You're thirsty, come to me and drink. Whoever believes, you're going to have rivers of living water flowing from within them. Water produces, right? Crops, it makes things grow. Water brings life. Living water is an endless supply. He's claiming to be the Messiah. Let's hear now the reactions and why Jesus is so controversial. Look at verse 40. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. You say, you mean a prophet, like another prophet? No. Moses had talked about in, uh, I think it's Deuteronomy 18, but I could be wrong. Yes, 1815, about a prophet that would be like him, like Moses, that would come later. And he said, that one you're supposed to hear, listen to. So some are hearing Jesus and saying, this is the guy. This is the prophet Moses talked about. Others said, he is, and this is a different thing, the Messiah, the, the chosen one that's supposed to come. Keep in mind, we always say in this Bible study, the Jews believed at that time they wanted a political, military strongman as a Messiah to throw off Rome and kick him out of Israel and rule there on the throne of King David. Is that what Messiah does? Yes, the second time he comes. But the first time he comes, he comes to die in our place to pull us out of line and get in line in our place to die for the sins of the world. Some people think he's the prophet. Others say he is the Messiah. Still other, which is Christ, same thing. Still others asked, wait a minute, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Galilee is way out in the country. This is hick country. These are sophisticated city people that don't think anything good can come from Galilee. Okay. Does not the scripture say, verse 42, that Messiah will come from David's descendants? Yes. And from Bethlehem? Yes. A plus, whoever's saying this, the town where David lived. So they think, judging, remember verse 24, judging by mere appearances, they've heard this guy's from Nazareth. Not only was Nazareth in Galilee, it was like a really small hick town. Really, really, really small. So, isn't he from Nazareth? Yes. But where's he from? Meaning, where was he born? Bethlehem, just outside of Jerusalem, fulfilling scripture, uh, prophecy. So, some people know the scriptures enough to know Messiah is supposed to be one of David's descendants. They're in Jerusalem, by the way. The Jews kept incredibly accurate um, genealogical records. 
all they would have had to go was go to the do is go to the temple and look up Jesus's parents, Mary and Joseph, and they would find Mary's from the line of David. So is uh, Joseph, his not biological, but his earthly father. Okay, where was Jesus born? That also would be recorded. Bethlehem. Hello, Bethlehem, by the way, means anybody know? House of bread. Very good. Uh, so there's controversy. He's the Messiah. He's the prophet. And then others don't think he is because he can't be. He's not David's descendant, but they're wrong. He's not from Bethlehem. They're wrong. And so the people, verse 43, were divided because of Jesus. I could preach on that scripture, that verse for a month. The people were divided because of Jesus. That's true today, isn't it? Do you have unsaved family members, unsaved friends, neighbors, coworkers, a sister, a cousin, a, a husband or wife, children? There's division, isn't there? Doesn't mean you can't love them, but it's a whole different worldview when you don't believe in Christ. They see things differently. They do what 24 says, judging by mere appearances. They, don't, they can't make a right judgment. They are dead spiritually. Jesus to this day divides people. Sadly, in America, we have a situation where in the schools, Jesus is like a four-letter word, meaning a swear word. You can get fired for pull, if you're a teacher and you pull out a Bible and go, let's read from Matthew chapter five. If a kid reports that to his parents and they're atheists or they're militant, whatever, unbelievers, and they report you, you can lose your job like that's such a dangerous word to say, Jesus, right? That's how divided we're becoming in this country. It's not politically correct to preach Jesus, let alone say, I know this sounds narrow, but Jesus said it. He's the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to God except through him. Oh, you people are so narrow. You Christians, you're so narrow-minded. But the truth is narrow, isn't it? Back to the text. He's the prophet. He's the Messiah. He can't be the Messiah. He wasn't born in the right place. He doesn't have the right parents. Verse 44, some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why do you think that is? Wasn't his time. God's supernaturally protecting him. I don't care if you came with a billion soldiers to arrest him. At this time, you couldn't do it. God wouldn't allow it. There are those that believe in God as um, the creator of a, listen, mechanical universe. Have you ever heard this term before? Mechanical universe uh, or a theist would believe this. They believe, yeah, there must have been some God that created everything. He created everything and he took his hands off it and went on vacation. And we're on our own down here, not in the Bible. You see God intervening, not only in nations and who reigns, but in individual people's lives. You're seeing it in that verse. They wanted to seize him. No one laid a hand on him. God said, no, you can't do that. God has the prerogative as God to limit our freedom and stop things he doesn't want to happen and allow, take his hand off and allow things he does want to have happen. Verse 45, 
all this doctrine, Joe, we need a little comic relief. Okay, here it comes. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? Remember these guys? What was, what was that verse 36? No, it was before that. Um, they, yeah, there it is, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him. No, that's not the one. Where is the one where they actually send 32? Yeah, very good. You get an A. Um, and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Done deal. We're going to go pick him up, right? They put out an APB on him with the red lights. And we have a former law enforcement guy right there. Um, so the temple guards show up and they go, well, where is he? Why didn't you bring him in? No one, verse 46, no one ever spoke the way this man does, they replied. In the Greek, the way it's the sentence is constructed constructed man is anthropos okay anthropology right you've heard that is in the emphatic position meaning it would be read like this no one ever spoke like this man no man is literally how it reads ever spoke like this man does that's a pretty astounding statement. Here's why. These are temple guards. They're always at the temple. Whenever Rabbi so-and-so or Rabbi Rex or Rabbi um, John is speaking or Rabbi Larry or Jeff is speaking, they hear all the rabbi. They've heard all the sermons. They've heard all the teaching. They're hearing this Jesus dude from Nazareth who is untrained, unschooled in the rabbi schools, and they have the audacity to say, I never heard anybody speak like this man. Do you mean the tone of voice, Joe? No. I mean what he was saying. Why is that? He had the gift of public speaking. No. It's God in a man's body. What else would you expect? Right? Listen, the word of God, Hebrews says, is like a sword. Do you remember that? It's powerful to the dividing of joints and marrow, soul and spirit. The word of God, God says in the Old Testament, when I put my word out there, it won't return to me void. It'll um, achieve the, the purpose for which it was sent. This is the human living word of God, fully man, fully God. He is the word. No wonder when he preaches, people go, wow. I want you to picture the scene, okay? Jesus is te teaching outside in the temple. It's maybe the next day, two days later, after he said that whole thing about, I'm the living water, come to me and drink, remember all that? The festival's over, he's still hanging out. They still aren't arresting him. He's preaching. He's got a huge crowd. You are watching the whole thing. Out of the corner of your eye in this huge crowd listening to Jesus, you see, oh no, look, Four temple police, maybe six, maybe three. Here they come. Uh-oh. The temple police have one thing on their mind. Find Jesus. There he is preaching again. Make your way through the crowd. Arrest him. Excuse me. Pardon me. Making your way through the crowd. But as they're doing it, they can't help but hear what he's saying. And at, point, at some points, they stop and listen. And the words are piercing their hearts like arrows. 
making them almost tear up. Let's keep walking. Let's go. Excuse me. Pardon me. It's taken a while to get there. And they're hearing another word. And one guy says something. And one of the guards says, shh, 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 listen, listening to his speak, him speak. It's like music to their ears. They get a little closer. They end up sitting down in the crowd, listening, transfixed, just absolutely hypnotized by the incredible words of love and of truth that God in a human body is speaking. And they're just transfixed. And eventually this teaching is over and Jesus dismisses the crown and the four guards wake up and go, oh, wait a minute. We were supposed to arrest this dude. They have to turn around with their tails between their legs and go back and report. To their credit, they tell the truth. No man ever spoke the way this man speaks. They could have said, we couldn't find him. He was well guarded. We couldn't get to him. He had armed guards with him. Um, he sprained his ankle and I had to help him. And we, we just didn't get there. We'll get there another day. They tell the truth. No man ever spoke the way this man spoke. Who are they saying this to? The religious leaders. Why does that matter? Because the religious leaders know he's done miracle after miracle. He's raised people from the dead. Now they're getting another testimony from their own guards who are Levites. Nobody ever spoke like this guy. Nobody, including all of you. It's kind of a cut to them in a way, right? His speech so transformed them. You wonder, were they, listen, thirsty? Did they come to Jesus to arrest him and end up drinking? Did these guys become Christians? We're not told. But they do say nobody ever spoke the way this guy spoke. Now, now we get the reaction from their superiors, the religious leaders. Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also? That's spoken with extreme uh, anger and, and, you know, they're really making fun of them. The Pharisees retorted, verse 48, have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, verse 49, but this mob knows that this mob knows, sorry, nothing of the law. There's a curse on them. They're cursed of God. Okay, what's going on here? pride. Okay. If you want to paraphrase what they're saying is, we are the religious leaders. We are the experts in the Torah, the Old Testament. We know it inside out. Has even one of us, Pharisees, Sadducees, Sanhedrin, has even one of us believed in this guy? They're implying it's unanimous. Jesus is a fake. And that's a lie. Because standing there, he's going to speak in a minute, is Nicodemus, who came to him in John 3 and said, we know that you're a teacher come from God. We, plural. John 12 says there were many of the religious leaders that believed in him, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Peer pressure. This is extreme peer pressure. Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But... This mob, that word for mob is a derogatory term. It's like saying these idiot 
poor people, these idiot hicks, literally it's these people of the land. They're cursed. They don't know the scriptures. No wonder they're falling for this faker. And the truth is God has revealed his truth to the humble, the lowly, right? Not the ones that are so prideful they think they know it all. These guys have a huge ego problem going on. Wrong page of notes. So there's a curse on them. <clears throat> the truth is there's a curse on the religious leaders because Jesus elsewhere, I think it's the gospel of Matthew, he calls them, do you remember? Blind guides. How would you like to go on a hike at midnight up near Yosemite? I've got this guide here. He's blind, but, and you go, wait, he's what? He's going to guide us? You don't want a blind guide, right? Blind people can do a lot of things. Play music is one, right? Guiding isn't one of them. They are blind guides for the whole nation of Israel. He also calls them whitewashed sepulchers. You say, I don't know what that is. They used to paint the graves uh, where people were buried white before every festival so that you would know, don't go near the white building. Why? Dead people are in there. If you want to come to worship and you touch a grave accidentally, I leaned on it. Now you're unclean. You can't go worship now. He calls them whitewashed. You look all clean on the outside, graves. On the inside, there's dead, rotting, dead man's bones. These guys are hypocrites all the way. And they are putting down these temple police who said, man, I, I never heard anybody speak like this guy. So you might be thinking like I am, man, I'd give anything to hear an audio recording of one of Jesus' sermons, wouldn't you? Or watch a DVD. And when we're in heaven, I believe we can, right? Check out the DVD, watch it on uh, GodTube instead of YouTube. Anyway, but the point is, you say, I wish I could hear it. Listen, there's all kinds of sermons in the Bible by Jesus. Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's a three-chapter sermon given by Jesus, and it's astoundingly beautiful. Even unbelievers have said it might be the greatest piece of oratory ever given by a human being. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. So they've put these guys down for not believing. That This mob knows nothing of the law. They don't know the Old Testament. There's a curse on them. Verse 50, Nicodemus, our old friend Nick, remember he came to Jesus at night. Is he a believer yet? He's getting there. By the end, when Jesus is crucified, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea take the body of Christ. They actually go to Pontius Pilate and ask, can we have the body? Pretty, uh, pretty risky thing to do in case they just killed him. They might say, oh, you're one of his followers. Let's kill you. Let's crucify you tomorrow. They go to him, gutsy move. Can we take the body? They anoint the body with spices. They basically bury him, Joseph of Arimathea, in, in his um, tomb. Nicodemus, verse 50, who had gone to Jesus earlier, chapter 3 of John, and who was one of their own number. He's a ruling Sanhedrin guy. There was 70 of them plus the high priest, 71. He asked, verse 51, I want you to notice that he defends him kind of distances himself. Watch. Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out 
what he's been doing? He's just asking a rhetorical question. Do we condemn somebody before we even interview them, check them out, investigate them? The answer to that question is no. The law says you're not supposed to make an unrighteous judgment. Remember verse 24, uh, judging uh, by appearances. Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? The answer to that is no. Verse 52, do they admit it? No. They replied, are you from Galilee? The Hick are you from Hicksville too? Are you that naive, that stupid? Are they looking right at Nicodemus? Probably. Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, they say, still in verse 52. And you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. It's impossible that this guy is a prophet, let alone the Messiah. He's from Galilee. It doesn't fit. Is he from Galilee? Yes. Originally? No. Bethlehem. But let's take their statement at face value. Look into it and see, and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Is that true biblically? No. Wait, there's a prophet from Galilee? How many have heard of Jonah? Jonah comes from a little town just north of Nazareth. Who knows their Old Testament? These guys are the experts. No prophet comes from Galilee. We check the scriptures. Wrong. Now, there are some prophets that were not positive where they came from. For sure, we know Jonah came from Gath Hefer, three miles north of Nazareth. But a lot of scholars think, are you ready for this? Elijah, Nahum, and Hosea also came from, wait for it, Galilee. Hello? How blind are these people? Romans 1 talks about people like this, and it says, it's an amazing statement. Considering themselves to be wise, they became utter fools. That's these guys. They're the religious leaders of Israel. Um, they're sort of the religious elites. They're sort of the religious swamp, if you will. And the swamp needs draining, right? Um, yeah, that's Romans 1. They, uh, yeah, we already talked about that. The, the rabbis had a saying, listen to this, it is forbidden to have mercy on one who has no knowledge. In other words, we look down on the people that are dumb, that are stupid. Don't have mercy on somebody that has no knowledge. The right answer would have been teach the one that has no knowledge. Pride often leads to spiritual blindness. Uh, verse 50, um, I think they're looking right at Nicodemus when they're saying verse uh, 52. Look into it and you'll see no prophet comes out of Galilee. Verse 53 starts a different section. Um, let me see. Let me conclude with this, and then we'll pick up verse 53. Next week, we're going to do 53 and go into chapter 8. Why are you saying that, Joe? It's kind of obvious. That is a very rare part of Scripture. There are only a handful of these. One is in 1 John. One is here. One is the end of Mark where it's extremely controversial whether this ought to really be scripture or not.
because the oldest and best manuscripts have verse 52 and goes and they go right to verse 12 of chapter 8 and skip this whole section the oldest and best manuscripts all of them no but most of them we'll talk about that next week whether is this really scripture it's the woman caught in adultery do you remember the story he who is without sin cast the first stone that's going to be next week um but we are going to study it. I'll show you. I'll tell you what I think about it, and we'll study it. But let me close with this. Notice that these people are judging Jesus incorrectly, right? Because they haven't done their homework. They didn't check his genealogy. They didn't really look in the Old Testament. Was there a prophet from Galilee? They don't look at the miracles. They're not making a right judgment. When I've witnessed to unsaved people, I've used this tactic. Listen, name a movie you've never seen. What? Name a movie that you've heard of, but you never saw it. And someone might say, you know, okay, uh, out of Africa. That may be too old for a lot of you. Um, I never saw The Exorcist. Okay. I never saw Saving Private Ryan. You never saw it. No, but you heard about it here and there. Yeah. Okay. What did you think of the cinematography? I, I didn't see it. How about the acting? Did you like the acting? I, I didn't see it. Okay, but what did you think about the ending and the script, the way things were worded? I didn't see it. Oh, so you can't really have a, an opinion about something that you haven't investigated. Now, let me ask you, have you read the Bible? Um, parts. I, I, yeah, I read it. The whole thing? Um, no. Here and there, which usually means no, right? couple little things. So how much have you investigated Jesus? Um, not really. I've heard some things. So it's sort of like that movie you've never seen, I guess. So how can you have an opinion about Jesus? He's just like the movie you haven't seen. I asked you about the cinematography, the plot, the acting. The If you can't have an opinion about a movie you've never seen, how can you have an opinion about a Jesus you've never investigated, about a Bible you've never read? Don't you think it's worth investigating the story since he's the central figure of human history? It's the best-selling book in the world. If you have an opinion about Jesus, then you're breaking your rule because you don't have an opinion about the movie you never saw, and yet you have an opinion about Jesus. Just an interesting tactic. Does it work? Not usually, but sometimes. <laughs> Let's close with prayer, shall we? Thank you for being here. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that we're getting to know who is this Jesus in the book. And as we do, we're seeing who is God, who you are, Father, because he reveals, uh, John 1.18 says, the Father. That's uh, so awesome. We see him being so compassionate, so gracious. We'll see it again next week. We see him acting like God would, sovereignly acting. And we see you acting as well in his time, that if it's not his time, nothing can happen because you're in control of planet earth. And we love that. And in our lives, we're only appointed to live for a certain time. Use us for your glory in that time, God. Lastly, we admit we were thirsty. That's why we came to you. We drank and we believe. And we're so thankful we have your spirit living inside of us, God. Let those rivers bubble up inside of us and fill us 
and yet satisfy us and yet also let it spray outward to the people around us uh, and let it be a contagious faith that we have that where we are offering the same water we got, which is your son, Jesus. Thank you for these truths, God. May they change the way we live. Thank you for this time we could spend together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for being here. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know if you're here in person. Those of you on Zoom, God bless you. Thank you so much for coming, and we'll see you next time. God bless.